Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, folks living in nursing homes were hit especially hard by COVID-19 during the early days of the pandemic. This we know. But now we want to know, how are they faring now? We'll speak with the state's advocate for long-term care residents, Melanie McNeil. Plus, Democratic Democratic State Senator Lester Jackson talks about his bill to raise the minimum age for dropping out of school. And we'll get his take on the Buckhead Sea legislation. One of these measures has been assigned to a committee he chairs. Community Conversations That Matter. It's coming up next. But first this, Georgia House Speaker Republican David Ralston has unveiled legislation he hopes will address poor mental health outcomes in the state. Called the Mental Health Parity Act, it would address a broad range of issues from how insurers cover mental health treatment to training more service providers. Ralston spoke earlier today surrounded by lawmakers from both parties. There is no issue this session more important to me than this issue. I am tired of telling desperate and hurting families that we have no treatment options available in Georgia. I am tired of looking in the faces of mothers who have lost a child because they saw no hope. And I'm tired of seeing the faces of those whose spiral downward has been fed by substance abuse. Georgia is a great state. Passage of this landmark bill will also mean we are a good state. Speaker Ralston also said he also expects money in the state budget to expand mental health services. The nonprofit group Mental Health America has consistently ranked Georgia among the worst states for access to mental health care. Of the state's 159 counties, 77 had no psychiatrists working full time and 76 did not have a licensed psychologist. That's according to January, a January 2021 report by state commission. In other news, as you heard on NPR, the head of Atlanta Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the huge wave of COVID-19 cases caused by the Omicron variant isn't necessarily causing a proportional number of hospitalizations and deaths. Dr. Rochelle Walensky says hospitalizations and deaths remain low when compared to overall U.S. case counts for a few possible reasons. First, many people in our country have some level of immunity from vaccination and boosters or from previous infection. And second, it's likely that Omicron is less severe than prior variants. Although it's encouraging that Omicron appears to be causing less severe disease, it's important to remember that we are still facing a high overall burden of disease. 
Hospitalizations have rapidly increased in a short amount of time, putting a strain on many local health systems. Importantly, milder does not mean mild, and we cannot look past the strain on our health systems and substantial number of deaths, nearly 2,200 a day, as a result of the extremely transmissible Omicron variant. Now, some hospitals in Georgia have reported record number of COVID-19 hospitalizations in recent weeks. Statewide, hospitalizations still haven't surpassed those during the last surge caused by the Delta variant. Walensky says Americans should still not let their guard down. And you know what's coming next. She says get vaccinated and boosted to protect yourself and the family. State Representative Ed Sessler today remembered former Cobb Commission Chairman Mike Boyce. According to a Facebook post, the county revealed Boyce had suffered several strokes and passed away Tuesday in Indiana. Now, Boyce served a single term as Cobb County's chairman. The Republican defeated Tim Lee for that post in 2016 in a vote that was seen as a referendum on Lee's efforts to relocate the Atlanta Braves to the suburban county. Representative Sessler paid tribute to Boyce in the House chamber. Mike was a person in representing Cobb County that uh, served people, looked after and cared for people, uh, even that would never vote for him, that, that didn't share his political philosophy, but just that were, he was just that kind of gentleman. And I uh, just want to celebrate him today. And as we uh, think about this young man uh, that, that served, he was, you know, 72 years young, left us too soon. But we're proud of the time we had with him. We'd like to thank him and his family for the life he lived. And I'd like to recognize, be, let's all recognize him in the moment of silence. Current Cobb Commission Chairwoman Lisa Cupid says she hopes people will remember Boyce, quote, efforts to create a place that was welcoming and working for all, both in and outside the walls of government, close quote. Mike Boyce was 72 years old. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're listening to Closer Look here on WABE 90.1. Amplifying Atlanta voices, that's what we do. This is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Here's what we know. Nursing homes and other long-term care facilities were hit hard, especially hard, by the coronavirus during the first part of the pandemic. And through the end of 2021, residents and staff made up nearly one quarter of all deaths in the U.S. That information comes from the nonprofit Kaiser Family Foundation. Here's what we also know. People living in nursing homes are also cut off from the outside world for months. Family and friends were not allowed to visit, all in an attempt to slow the spread of the virus. But it also meant less oversight in terms of the kinds of care and treatment residents in long-term care facilities received. And as the state continues to weather another wave of the pandemic, just how are these facilities and their residents faring now? 
Well, Melly McNeil is Georgia's long-term ombudsman. Her job is to advocate for people living in long-term care facilities and also investigate investigate complaints. So you know what that means? Melly McNeil joins me now. Thanks for taking the time. Hi, Rose. Glad to be here. I know folks may not like to do this, but let's go back to the early days of the pandemic and, and just how bad, because you were there, how bad was it and were some of the conditions in, in our state's nursing homes? Well, Rose, what happened when the when the governor first gave his um, order about the public health emergency, long-term care ombudsman representatives were excluded from long-term care facilities. So we did not visit from March until October mm-hmm. because we were allowed in and really no one was. So family members might have been able to visit at the window with a resident. Not every facility allowed that. <clears throat> some residents were able to talk over the phone, but as your listeners can probably imagine, some people who live in long-term care don't hear very well. Sometimes their language, they've lost some of their language skills. So talking to someone over the phone or even like FaceTime or, or one of those just didn't work. People with dementia, especially with confused you know, when they see someone on the screen and try to try to talk that way. So it was a very difficult time for residents and families and for the investment program, because all we could do is call the facilities to ask them what was happening. And as you might imagine, and your listeners probably would also be aware, facilities were scrambling to take care of the residents they had, many of them sick or trying to figure out who is sick and who isn't sick and trying to divide them telling everyone to stay in their rooms. So residents were very isolated. Mm. The residents failed to thrive just for that reason, not because they got COVID, but from the isolation. Even in the phone calls that you were able to make, what'd you hear, Melanie? Well, you know, it's sort of funny. Um, Some of the residents actually called our ombudsman representatives to say, we're worried about you. We're not talking to you. We're not seeing you. Are you okay? Uh, But they might say, something happened to my roommate. I I don't know what, or my friend who lives down the hall, I haven't been able to see her or him or talk to them for a a long time. I'm very lonely. Uh, I haven't been able to talk to my family. In fact, one of our investment representatives said a resident told her that she thought all of her family was dead because they weren't visiting. They weren't, but you know, all they were hearing is COVID is everywhere and people are dying. And and this resident thought that all her family was dead because the communication Hmm. wasn't so facilities are supposed to help people communicate. They're supposed to have a phone available for those who can use it, but not every facility is good at that. And, you know, uh, just trying to meet the needs, the physical needs and the medical needs. I think it was hard for facilities to, to do more. And obviously there was no, as we've been saying, there was no playbook on how to deal with the pandemic. It was something new for all of us. Um, And I imagine even asking how prepared were long-term care facilities for this may seem like a a silly question, but were some able to, what what was that like for them to have to shift and pivot all of a sudden? Well, you know, that's the interesting thing, Rose, too. Facilities encounter infections, you know, they have since before COVID, but not on this scale. And so if you think back March, April, May, you couldn't get personal protective equipment. You know, you couldn't get masks and shields and gloves. And if you could, they were very expensive. And so I I imagine that's another reason facilities were trying to be very careful about 
you know, visiting or not visiting. But although, I mean, we had we had directives from officials that said you shouldn't be visiting also. So, but that made it really hard. Millie, I'm curious, when were you able to visit a facility? So we, we got back in in October. And if you'll remember, in October, we still didn't have vaccinations. Mm-hmm. That didn't come out until last year, uh, January, February. And so uh, we were, so the ombudsman program was assured by our Department of Public Health that if we wore face masks, the N95 or K95, I mean, we even got gowns and face shields and gloves and the whole thing. But we were assured by the Department of Public Health if we did that and we did hand hygiene, you know, if we weren't wearing gloves, that we would be safe. And all of our ombudsman representatives, none of them came down with COVID, even though we were visiting during that time when we didn't have vaccination. So I think it works. I mean, public health told us it works. And so we continue even now. Most of our folks are vaccinated, but we still wear masks. We still social distance when we're talking to residents, although we do try and be sure that we can like visit with a resident in their room so that we can have a private conversation. But we do the hand hygiene. We're doing what we can. And for our listeners who may not be aware, let's give them an update. What is the state of access today? Can family and friends freely visit? They can get in. Is that how it's operating for most now? Well, you know, it's a little confusing, Rose. The, so the, the federal government, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, came out with a directive in November that said all residents are able to visit with anyone they wish all the time. Mm-hmm. But the public health also has a role to play. And so if a facility has a COVID outbreak, then facilities may try and manage more who's visiting. And this is an issue that uh, comes to the ombudsman program frequently. Family wants to visit, facility says no, we're in there advocating to say, you need to make this happen. Let's figure out how to do it safely, but you need it's clear from the federal government, this is for nursing homes, clear from the federal government, you have to allow the visits. So we, we get a lot of questions from the public and also complaints from residents. That they they need help with being allowed to visit. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is now, facilities are trying to be careful. They are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we know from being too careful is that people fail to thrive. So you have to allow visits. You just have to figure out a and let's talk about then the, the vaccination rates, because from what we understand that uh, residents of long term care facilities are much more likely to be vaccinated than the general public. But then the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare and Medicaid Services say about 85 percent of people living in these settings in Georgia are vaccinated compared to just about 54 in general here in, in Georgia, which is good. Are you but are you still do we know if these are mandated that that employees Workers in these, they have to be vaccinated. What's the status of that, the workers? I, I, I can't say for sure. We don't necessarily track that. I get that information from the news, just like you do. Sure. It's fewer of the staff that are vaccinated. And, you know, what, what we do know is because we didn't have vaccinations early in the pandemic and facilities were locked down, except for the workers who were going in and out that COVID came into buildings often because of the staff. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so important that we're hearing people talk about, make sure that staff get vaccinated. Do you know if there, 
based on the facilities you've been in contact with in terms of personnel? Did they see a, sh- a decline at all? I mean, we've been hearing about the great resignation and folks leaving certain jobs. What what can you tell us here about in Georgia? Are we do we see any trend in, in, in as it work as it relates to workers in these facilities? Right. So yes, staff is short. We're hearing that anecdotally. We don't we don't um, we don't track that. We mm-hmm. don't have the data. The uh, Department of Community Health would probably have that data. But what we're hearing anecdotally is that there isn't enough staff, and that they're using temporary staff because they don't have permanent staff. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a concern. No, go ahead. Finish. It, it's a concern across the country. It's, it's, it's a concern. I've been asking a lot of folks this question in terms of lessons learned, um, the takeaway, you know, how coming out of this, listen, it appears COVID is going to be with us. So, but what has been, you think the, what, if you want to call them issues, inequities have been highlighted or amplified by this pandemic that you hope then will have a, a greater or more positive outcome moving forward? What would those be? Well, there are two things. I think the biggest is you can't just lock things down forever. Residents fail to thrive. You know, we know that about children. If children go without interaction, they're going to fail to thrive. And the pandemic just brought that home. It's true of adults too. If you lock them down, if you don't give them information, if you don't allow them to interact, they're going to fail to thrive. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think that's crystal clear is the people who do the work in the nursing homes are not paid well enough. And so they're not going to stay at a job where they feel threatened by COVID, but also that they're just not getting, they're not getting paid. There isn't enough staff. So that means they have to work even harder. And so we've got to look at the direct care workers and how to support them better. So workers, now let's talk about facilities. Is there a new normal that you think will come out of this big changes that could that could come in terms of facilities, they're, they're, how they're structured, uh, maybe even the building of new facilities. Is there going to be a new normal because of all this? You know, that's hard to say, but many of the nursing homes in the state are older buildings. So they're, you know, they might be concrete block buildings. They might've been built in the sixties or fifties, even or the seventies. So changing the structure of them, making them, uh, setting them up differently. Some are in a, like a, a hall, like an H setup. Some are more like perpendicular lines. I don't know exactly how we make that better, but I do think that folks will look at that. And I'm curious, Melanie, have you looked at what other, how other states were faring doing all of this? And were there anything they implemented that you felt Georgia could have used or Georgia could have done? Actually, you know, I am uh, really happy that Governor uh, Kemp used the uh, National Guard to help with the infection control. I think we were one of the first states to do that. Mm -hmm. I really commend him for doing that. I know other states then did that. I'm not aware of anything in particular that other states did that we didn't do. But uh, um, I do talk with my colleagues across the country. Every state has a state long-term care ombudsman. But most of what we experienced was really pretty much the same across the board. Let's let's talk about what you do in your role for um, for a moment. And for our listeners who may not be familiar, you know, you're often sometimes referred to as the the, the top advocate for long-term residents and in, in the care they received. Uh, but take our listeners through what what you're doing. 
Sure. Well, so the Federal Older Americans Act created the Ombudsman Program in 1979. And so our office has been around since that time. We have, each state does a little differently, but mm-hmm. we have state staff. That, well, they're not state staff, I should say that. The state contracts with professional ombudsman representatives, and they visit facilities quarterly when it's not COVID. So before COVID, every long-term care facility, personal care home, assisted living, nursing home had a quarterly visit from an ombudsman representative. And they go and visit with residents. They just go and talk to them, Mm -hmm. ask how things are going. They're a presence there so that if a resident has a concern and they feel like they can't really share it with the facility, they'll share it with the ombudsman representative and say, you know, can you help me with this? Uh, you know, I, um, they make me get up too early or they don't bring my medicine when I need to have it, or I'd like to go outside and they don't let me go outside, different kinds of issues. And our ombudsman representatives are there to help. So I oversee the program. So uh, folks call me when they run into an issue. Um, Do we have time for me to tell you one little anecdote? Absolutely. Yes. So sort of early in the pandemic, a man lived in a nursing home. His wife lived in the community. His wife had cancer and she died. He wanted to see her one last time and the facility wouldn't allow it. He said, no, 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 not letting you out of the building. You can't do it. The funeral home had said, we will wheel her out uh, outside. You don't have to get out of the car. We'll just make it so that you can see her one last time. So the ambassador representative called me and said, what do I do? I said, well, tell them they have to do it, first of all, and then tell them, you know, maybe I'll call the media on this because this is wrong. You know, you need to allow this. They did. The the administrator changed his mind. Melanie, how how emotional is this, too, for you? Listeners can't see you. Um, (laughs) My eyes are watering. Yeah, I have an aunt that I haven't seen in two years, so I understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, gosh, I was hoping not to get emotional. So it's okay. Uh, sorry. It's okay. Take your time. But, yeah, I mean, but, it, but it's a real thing. It's mm-hmm. a real thing for residents. They have needs to see their families, and we're just there to try and help. And when we talk about facilities in the rural part of our state, I'm imagining they experience another set of issues than as opposed to here in the Atlanta area. Um, Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. uh, I had another story from an ombudsman representative about um, direct care workers in a rural area. So it's a mom and two daughters. They each worked at different facilities. The mom drove the carpool. So the mom picked up the one daughter and then the next daughter dropped them off at each one. So it amplified the exposure to each of them to the virus. So that's the kind of issue. You know, if we don't pay people enough, they can't afford transportation and transportation is harder in the rural areas. Then you end up with this. I mean, they weren't trying to spread COVID mm-hmm. and I don't know they actually did, but it's just a concern that one of the things that was also early on in the pandemic is some direct care workers worked at more than one facility. So they might do a day shift one place and an evening shift at another. And they did, facilities didn't want them doing that because of the exposure risk. We don't pay people enough. Hmm. And so in order to be able to live, they had to have two jobs. We need to do better, especially in the rural areas. This was the case. Have you 
made that known to state lawmakers or to Governor Kemp? And, and I know we're, we're right now dealing with the budget, the state's budget. Um, it does call for an increase for state employees. Um, mm-hmm. But if you if you had a chance to address lawmakers about what would you tell them in terms of making sure that folks are compensated who are working in this space? I would say as the General Assembly is assessing, you know, how they might uh, increase what they give to nursing homes, because a lot of the income to nursing homes is through Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So they improve the Medicaid reimbursement. They need to target it. They need to say a certain percentage of this needs to go to the direct care workers. And then they need to hold the facilities accountable to report back that, yes, you gave me, let's just take a round number, $100,000. And so $50,000 $50,000 of that went to direct care staff payment. And I'll show you right now, here's, here's what we did with the um, with our payroll. That's what we need to do. Mm. Melanie, as we wrap up, and I we started this conversation talking about what long-term care facilities we're dealing with. And I know you, you can't, all of them, you can't, you should, probably shouldn't lump them all. But right now, if you could just give a general assessment of how they're faring in all of this, what would you, what would you say? Well, if I could tell your listeners, if you have a loved one or a friend in a long-term care facility, do what you can to visit them because they've been isolated for a while. They may have seen some folks over the holidays because this frequently happens, even non-COVID. More people are in the building during the holidays and then and then they, they aren't. So I would encourage your listeners to go visit anyone they know who's in a long-term care facility. Not just do what you can to stay in touch and make sure that they're doing okay. Melanie McNeil is Georgia's long-term ombudsman. We've been discussing how the COVID-19 pandemic continues to impact the residents of long-term care facilities in the state. Melanie, thank you so much for what you and your staff do for so many. Thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rose. Closer Look will continue in just a moment, but wanted to share this with you. Some sad news from Zoo Atlanta that was revealed yesterday. Ozzy, the world's oldest known male gorilla, has died at the zoo. He was 61 years old, making him the third oldest known gorilla in the world. The zoo announced late Tuesday that Ozzy was found by his care team earlier in the day. The cause of death is still unknown. Zoo officials are hopeful they'll know more after a necropsy is done on Ozzy. I visited Ozzy some years ago, as he was the first gorilla in the world to participate in a voluntary blood pressure reading. This was about some cardiac checkups for all the gorillas. The fine folks, I believe at Georgia Tech, created a blood pressure cuff, especially for gorillas. And of course, they were trained with what else? Food, bananas, fruit. Old Ozzy was the only surviving member from a generation of gorillas brought to the zoo back in 1988. This is Closer Look.
Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. There are many factors as to why student drops out of high school. We'll discuss those in just a moment with our next guest. According to the most recent data from the National Center for Educational Statistics, in 2019, there were 2.0 million status dropouts. Now, what does that mean when we say status dropouts? Well, that refers to those between the ages of 16 and 24 who were not enrolled in school and not earned a high school diploma or GED. In the U.S., every state has a minimum age requirement for when students may stop attending school with their parents' consent. The age range, well, it's between 16 and 18, depending on the state. Now, here in Georgia, that age is 16. But there's a bill to increase the age requirement for when a student can drop out of school. And joining me now to talk all about this is State Senator Lester Jackson of Savannah. He represents the 2nd District of Georgia. Senator Jackson, welcome. Appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on your on your show. It's, it's indeed an honor to we, uh, be a part. We appreciate it. We love Savannah. <laughs> well, you know, so, so Savannah is a wonderful uh, uh, part of Georgia. Um, we tell, we call it God's country, uh, where the water tastes like wine and the bread tastes like apple pie. And so we, we invite all to come to taste <laughs> a little bit of heaven. And we may have a little bit of a delay, so we want our listeners to understand that. But I want to begin with this, Senator. You and your fellow lawmakers are busy, as usual. Um, how would you assess the tone of the General Assembly right now? How y'all doing? Everybody getting along? Some of y'all took pictures yesterday. Well, well, yeah, we normally state that, you know, uh, the Georgia General Assembly goes through three phases. Uh, the first phase is which, what we are now is the... Uh, introduction phase, the happy phase, where everybody's happy, good to see each other again, talking about working together, how we're going to move Georgia forward. And then we roll into a third phase, uh, a second phase, where we get bogged down into uh, uh, these new ideas, these new visions for, for Georgia, and we find out we don't all agree mm-hmm. uh, uh, on the direction of our great state, and there's some controversy and, and debate, tremendous debate. And then there's the, the final stage, where we don't have much time left, so we all got to get a consensus so we can all go home. So, so, so we're we're still in, in in the I love my neighbor phase. So happy stage, the fussing stage, and then the let's get it done so we can go home stage. Which is those are the three stages. Right, <laughs> right. those are the three stages. I love right. it. Mm-hmm. As we get into this measure that you've introduced, um, and you've introduced this before, but explain to our listeners what this bill is all about. I gave a brief. Brief, very brief definition here, but for our listeners not familiar, tell them about it. Well, 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 well I've been, what I what I introduced, and it's, I've been introduced for a number of years, is increasing the high school dropout age from sixteen to seventeen. Mm-hmm. What what we're finding out is that this law that was created in in, in, 19, in the nineteen forty is an antiquated law. You know, it was based on the agricultural system where we need to put uh, young men predominantly back in the fields to work as fast as they could. And we thought that at 16, they were able enough to, to drive the track, to, to, to work in the fields, to handle the agriculture labor that it takes to move the products from the farm to the shelves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but we found out now in this 21st century that, that we're no longer a largely an agricultural community. We are technologically advanced community. And for people to, 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 to survive, to have livable wages, they're going to have to have a skill, have to have some sort of skill, 
whether it's vocational or technical. And you cannot get that uh, uh, if we allow you to drop out of school at 16. Let me tell you in Georgia what you can't do at 16. You can't smoke at 16. You can't drive in a car without a seatbelt at the age of 16. Well, you can't drive with a seatbelt uh, at all at 16. You you cannot drink alcohol. You cannot get married. And But we allow you to drop out of school. Mm-hmm. Um, we found out that young people who drop out at 16, many of them wind up in, in the, our penal institutions. Many of them become become dependent on on uh, our public assistance mm-hmm. and, and our great state and our federal government. Um, we need to do all we can to help young people help themselves. And that's, that's you know, highly encouraging them to get a high school diploma so they can find a job that pays a livable wage. If we allow young people to continue to drop out at 16, we know they cannot find a, a job that pays a livable wage at the age of 16. And consequently, they become dependent mm-hmm. on the state of Georgia. We want young people in our great state to be independent, to, to, to live and work with, with livable wages and be an asset to Georgia and, and our country versus a, a liability. And let me ask you this, Senator, because through your lens, there are so many challenges or reasons that may push a student to drop out of school and I want you to, to focus on that because I think also there is a lot of misconceptions about not only who drops out, but the circumstances behind it. You feel then an extra year could help be a, a deterrent to those issues that are that are forcing some kids to drop out because it may be due to social economic circumstances. It may not necessarily be to behavioral. It could be to failing grades. But there are a lot of factors that could contribute to this. And and that's why um, a part of this legislation, we we don't uh, uh, we encourage young people who don't want to uh, stay in a traditional classroom setting. We we allow uh, uh, alternative settings mm-hmm. so that young people can continue to get a high school diploma. My dad was a uh, vocational educational teacher, and and down in, in in Savannah, Georgia, where young people went to school half a day. And then the rest of half a day, uh, uh, we allowed them to go on, on, on job sites. And they were they uh, laid bricks. They worked in restaurants. They worked in the hotel, motel industry. We taught them skills so that when they complete their high school uh, education, they got a diploma in one hand, but oftentimes they got a vocational skill in the other hand. So, so they were ready and equipped to go out and be, you know, um, a, a – a not only a useful, viable citizen, mm-hmm. but a citizen that had a livable job, a livable wage job, and we didn't have to worry about that young person again. But but when we allow people just to walk away at 16, we're not doing, we're not really helping them at all. And I know some school districts, I remember a few years ago, APS partnering with uh, some care, uh, car automotive companies, um, construction, uh, different other industries to get young folks interested in. They would spend some time at school, then they would go to this program. Are you saying you need more programs like that? We need a lot more programs like that. And I will tell you, and I, and, and there are programs in, in Savannah, Georgia, um, that have a daycare uh, facility right in the high school. So, so we don't want the fact that a young lady becomes pregnant to be a deterrent to stay at home and get work. She can continue, continue to go to school, uh, uh, 
uh, and be involved in the daycare program, be involved in the daycare program, program for a child, but also get a skill and continue the, the process. Um, um, because we know it just it's more than just education. Mm-hmm. We need to be about helping young people succeed. But 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 when we tell a young person that they can go home at 16, we're not we're doing we're giving that young person a disservice. So let's work with them. Whether or not have them transfer to technical schools that will mm-hmm. continue their education uh, uh, while while they transition into technical school, uh, working with a high school diploma and getting a job skill. There there are there are many ways that we can do a, a partnership with high schools and technical schools so they can get a high school diploma and then continue uh, working on the skills so they so that they can help themselves and their families. And, Senator, as you know, I don't need to tell you, with many measures that get introduced, even if there is bipartisan support, often funding is a concern. Have you heard concerns about, okay, how do we fund this? And and would, it, would well, it, the cost come to the State Department of Education? Well, well, to to enact this, uh, the the anticipated cost would cost about eight million dollars a year. Okay, mm-hmm. eight eight million dollars a year, and you saying, "Wow, that's a, a a lot of money," and and that is a a lot of money. But you know, we have a budget of thirty billion dollars this year for for the state of Georgia. But uh, I wanna I wanna ask you, um, what it costs our prison system and our jail system to house young people that that wind up in our criminal situation. We know that 80 percent, I mean, I'm sorry, we know that 60 percent of people that's incarcerated in jails today don't have a high school d- diploma. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's a direct correlation. Okay. But we, but I'm not saying it's a direct correlation, but we know when people are looking, seeking opportunity and they can't find it because they don't have the skills for a job, when when they can't, when they don't know, the, they don't know how to fill out an application or, or go to an interview, or or, or or know any of the technical skills, um, um, they oftentimes have to result um, making money doing uh, doing other things, and a lot of times that involves criminal activities, and when they and when they get caught, that becomes a burden not on not only on the state but 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 this entire country and a burden on their families. It's expensive to keep people incarcerated. It's, we save a lot of money by teaching them a skill, catching them early, teaching them a skill so that they can take care of themselves. This $8 million, if it can't come from the state, do you feel that there is a, another avenue, maybe public, more public-private partnerships? Well, well, I, I will tell you, this money can come from the state. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, this money will come from the state because of the money we save by not incarcerating these young people in high school, uh, uh, that drop out of high school, but, that that don't wind but up you, in but, our. But I want to be clear, Senator. Forgive me, because you you're saying though, you, the inference here is that those without a high school diploma or a GED might end up in the state's correctional system. You, you, but you're not saying that it is. If you if that's the narrative you're using, can you understand some folks having a problem with that? Saying that for some of these these kids, these young folks, you know. Yeah, they need a, they need help. We want to have programs, but if you're using the we don't we don't want to, them to end up in correctional facilities, or it costs more to house an inmate as opposed to student. Can you understand some folks taking offense to that? I I can, but 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 the truth of the matter is, when you do a survey of our prisons and you do a survey of our jails, we know that more than half don't have high school diplomas. Sure, and 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 we need to somehow. Uh, 
stop this, or, you know, somehow curve it, and and making sure that we give every opportunity to our young people that that's still in high school, so they don't wind up in 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 uh, situations that hurt them and their families, and become a burden of the state. So so and and one of the ways is making sure they get a quality education. Mm-hmm. And and I think when we allow people to drop out, we're discouraging them from staying in school. Does this measure also? Is there anything and are there any provisions here that also would begin to help? And I know schools have these these programs because I've covered them that begin to identify who some of these students are early on. And that could be based on grade or it could be just on the fact that they're absent a lot. Because, as you know, for some students, they may move around a lot. The household moves around due to housing instability, due to being unsheltered. Due to due to it's, lack of work for the parent, I mean, you 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 recognize that, you know that. I there are a lot of social issues that that go on, in in in, in our homes and in, and in, in our Georgia families, um, and some and some young people at an early age have to go to work to support their their, their families. Um, um, some uh, young people, for uh, for better or worse, uh, parents can uh, cannot support their family so 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 young people have to take over and, mm-hmm. and make s- sacrifices we we understand that um um but but what i'm saying is is that um and there are some dysfunctional parents too yes there, there are some dysfunctional parents that that it may sometimes be a better avenue for for young people to live on their own while working a a job versus living in in a dysfunctional household um, you know, I, and I know we live in the midst of a lot of child abuse, a lot of sexual abuse, mm-hmm. just and and just a lot of social actions going on in a traditional home that shouldn't be there. So, so we understand those things. But, but what I'm saying, and this and what this bill is is saying, is that we need to encourage young people to to go to the highest level of education they choose to, mm-hmm. and and we know that that people with high school diplomas earn more money. Uh, than people without high school diplomas. This measure is in the Education and Youth Committee. What are you hearing? Well, um, um, uh, about uh, ten years ago, when I first introduced this idea, idea it was a uh, it, it, it was it it didn't receive uh, bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, eight years later, well, eight years later, this has been bipartisan measures on, for members on the, on the Senate. As well as the House, mm-hmm. Republican Democrats having different versions of of this high school dropout bill. So it is getting um, um, support, uh, not majority support, uh, as as we want. It's still moving slow, mm-hmm. but uh, we have we have noticed that uh, we noticed that the eight million dollars is such a huge number. But what we do to put a but what we do for the um, to expand the quality of life for hundreds of young people in Georgia is far worth it. Mm. And Senator, you're busy because you chair the Urban Affairs Committee, which is where the Senate version of the Buckhead Cityhood legislation was assigned. I wanted to be able to get to that for a moment. Uh, what do you feel other that you all, the committee needs to hear or be presented with before advancing this bill or putting your comments to this or sending it back? What do you need to be convinced of? 
Well, well, I'm going to tell you, um, I've been chair of the Urban Affairs Committee for, I think this is my fourth year as chair of the Ur- Urban Affairs Committee, and we're going to treat the uh, Buckhead Bill like we've treated every other bill that's come through our committee. Uh, excuse me. First, we're going to be transparent. Uh, we're going to let everybody know um, the process and, 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 and the stages. We have everyone who wants to uh, voice their opinion give them the ability to voice their opinion. Mm-hmm. The Urban Affairs Committee will not only be transparent, but we're going to be fair. Um, um, and, and we're not going to take sides. And um, and what I want your listeners to know is that uh, the Senate Urban, Air, uh, Urban, Affairs, Urban Affairs Committee is like all other um, Senate committees, that we're going to go through the legislative process. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're not going to um, uh, uh, sit on this you know, and and just wish it could go away. We want public input. We want legislative. We don't want the legislative process to run its course. We want legislators, if they're interested, to to participate in this. Because at the end of the day, we want to know if if it's if it's right for the citizens of Atlanta, and if and if it's right for for the state of Georgia. When you say you're going to be fair and transparent, is there anything you want to reveal in terms of what you would need to be convinced of or what you are hoping to hear? Or would you you want to keep that to your chest and just wait and hear what you hear? I just want to wait and hear what I hear. I, I don't want to form any uh, opinions uh, pro or con. I just want to be fair and just listen to the author and listen to uh, public concerns. Will you tell me what you don't want to hear? Or is that the same answer? That's the same answer. <laughs> Uh, 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 yes, that's about the, the, the same answer. Um, um, this is uh, uh, a very uh, uh, this uh, legislation piece uh, mm-hmm. has gotten a lot of different opinions from a lot of different people. Yes, it and has. I've been, and I've been hearing from both sides, and uh, and and I'm I'll be honest with you, both sides have good points, but I want to let the Senate. Urban Affairs Committee go through the legislative process so that um, so so that I will direct the Senate members of the Urban Affairs Committee uh, and every member of the Senate uh, uh, that you know I will have an an, an, an hearing and hearing an open hearing mm-hmm. and hear all concerns and we just let it follow its course. Did it bo- every member vote? Did it bother you that when this was announced, when Lieutenant Governor Duncan? assign this and then there were media reports that this legislation was then going to be doomed because it was a committee of mostly Democrats or all Democrats and that this legislation was going to be doomed. Did that bother you at all? It it, it did bother me uh, uh, to the point that people already uh, assume that uh, that we had already made up our, our mind. Mm-hmm. And but but that's but that's not Georgia. That's not the legislative process that people preconceive ideas before they hear the idea. And, oh, and that happens a lot. You know that, Senator. Well, well, we, we're we trying to be fair and transparent. Mm. We want to be open. Um, um, I've had conversations with the author of the bill, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and he expressed his concerns and, and why he wants and why he, he wants to do it. So, um, so um, uh, we want to treat um, this legislation like we treat all legislation uh-huh. and be fair and let and let the uh, political process uh, move. All right. State Senator Lester Jackson of Savannah, the second 
Senate District of Georgia. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you, Mike. Okay. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rizal are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other because the email is pretty simple, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look and our new website. Also, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.